Super. Keep that question in your mind. And I've started that question because that's my aim, to answer that question in the next 20 minutes or so. It's, it's Matthew. We've been looking at the book of Matthew. It's his aim fundamentally to do that as well. Firstly, what Matthew's going to do, he does two things, I think, in this passage. Firstly, he wants to um, tell us this is true. He wants to give us some evidence that it happened. Uh, and secondly, what difference does it make? So we'll, we'll end up reading a little bit the bit which Josh stopped at, 16 to 20, where there's the Great Commission, where we see what difference does it make. Because... This is question is really important because if it is true that Jesus lived, died and rose again, then it has to change everything. I was um, out for a walk a few months ago with a good friend. Um, he was asking some great questions uh, and it got about an hour into our walk. Uh, we dealt with a lot of different questions and queries I had about the Christian faith. Uh, and it came to this and, and I said, look, in some ways all your questions are great. But my whole faith, my whole life hinges on whether Jesus rose from the dead. Blank said right at the start, the Apostle Paul says the same. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. It's a challenge for us. But we, we believe it did happen. Well, many of us in this room believe it did happen. I, I like actually believe it. And it's worth just saying that at the start. If, you, if you're a guest here today, as we said, you're so welcome. Kind of know that what we believe is categorically nuts. Like it really is, isn't it? We believe this man, Jesus, lived 2,000 years ago, that he was brutally murdered, tortured on the cross. He died, he was buried, he was sealed in a tomb, and then he rose again, like, like properly rose again, like physically, bodily rose again, and then he's coming back. That's what we believe. Uh, so it's important to say that we actually believe that is true. Uh, and so the first question to deal with before we even get to Matthew saying to us his evidence for it is could it even possibly be true? Because we all know that is nuts, isn't it? Dead people don't rise. As Lang said in his prayer, it's, death is sad. It's, it's, we've probably nearly all experienced it in this room in some way, shape or form. And the people in the New Testament here, they weren't some backwards idiots who believed it either. It's easy to kind of read back into history and go, oh, they didn't know what we knew. <laughs> they knew exactly what we knew. Dead people don't rise. But it's worth saying that it could be possible that if God does exist, and that's the if to answer, and if his son, as we're told here, did come and live the only perfect life in this world, if he faced and conquered sin, and then the result of sin, the greatest enemy, death, and he beat that, if this man could come and live perfectly, if this man could come and live, then it is possible that God could raise him from the dead. So we say it's possible. It is possible. So, so if you don't believe in Jesus yet today, have that in your mind. If God does it, this is possible. It's odd, and it's only happened once in all of history, I want to say, but it is possible. God is God, he can do it. But it is possible, but it is, tr- is it true? That's the first question Matthew wants us to see here. Writing to his audience, who would have been a Jewish audience, who, who didn't want to believe this was true. He litters this passage here with sort of evidence. Matthew is an eyewitness, and he, he wants to point us to, there's multiple bits of evidence. I'm going to focus on four bits of evidence. We're going to rattle through them a little bit. Loads has been written on the historical evidence of resurrection. As I said, it's, it's been crucial for me, this coming to faith in Jesus. This was crucial for me. Great books, books like The Case for Christ by a former atheist lawyer, Lee Strobel. He analysed it. A book by a guy called N.T. Wright is super called The Resurrection of the Son of God. All looking at sort of the details of the resurrection, the history of it. So here briefly are Matthew's four ways. Firstly, we have right at the start of female witnesses. See, right at the start there, after the Sabbath, at the dawn of the first day of the week, 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. The first to meet the risen Jesus, the first to see the empty tomb, were two women witnesses. They then got wonderful words of comfort. Did you notice it? Do not be afraid, the angel said. Wonderful words of understanding from the angel. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. What is amazing, culturally, historically, that these were women. Now, if we looked at all of Matthew and studied the culture of the time, then we would know women counted for little in those days. It's one of the most amazing parts of Jesus' teaching. It's undertaught on that he demonstrated the equality and utter dignity of all people, of men and women in a culture where that was categorically not the case. Jesus is radically, fundamentally amazing in this point. Uh, and we see it right here because it, it makes no sense that Matthew would include this in his gospel if he didn't think it was true. It makes zero sense because straight away, anyone reading it from the time would go, <laughs> okay, that means nothing. If anyone was going to fabricate the resurrection story, they just edited out. Literally, they were not allowed in court of law as witnesses. So, so that's the first thing Matthew wants to point us to. It's shocking. If you're an original reader reading it, it'd be shocking to go, okay, you're going to start with that, Matthew? Sure. But he does start with that. Female witnesses. Secondly, the empty tomb. Despite a stone, despite a guard, the tomb was empty on that Easter Sunday. It, it, it's impossible to imagine how the teaching of the resurrection would get off the ground if the tomb wasn't empty. Anyone could have gone to the tomb and just dispel the story straight away. And lots would have tried. The Jews tried, the Romans tried, but they didn't want this to be true. As we saw in that little section just at the end of our passage, the guards were bribed into telling uh, a fabricated story that they fell asleep. It must have been empty or they would have just produced the body. Again, that doesn't mean to say that Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't, doesn't mean that at all, necessarily. But there's no doubt the tomb was empty. Historically, you look at all the history from, from non-Christian, from Jewish people who don't want this to be true. They all say a man called Jesus lived, a man called Jesus was crucified, and a man called Jesus had a body which couldn't be found. This is historically, categorically true. There's zero doubt it was empty. Then we see the transformed lives. And we see that here and we see that elsewhere. The transformation Jesus follows is stark. Do you remember at the cross? They'd all abandoned Jesus. Every single disciple, following the three as they abandoned Jesus at the cross. All his disciples had fled, kind of except for these two women here who were mourning at this point. They'd attended the tomb mourning. And look at me at verse 8. What happens then? They leave wonderfully, afraid yet filled with joy. In verse 17, which I haven't read yet, we see the same with the disciples. They worshipped and some doubted. Makes total sense to the response, doesn't it? Some will worship, some will doubt. It makes sense. And as we read on in the Bible, we're about to go back into a series in Acts. We see how the resurrection changed the disciples, how it changed their characters. And all but one of the disciples, the original disciples, history records, died. They were murdered for preaching that Jesus not only died, but that he rose again. Jesus' resurrection transformed lives. And Matthew points to that just here as we see the response of worship from morning. <coughs> Finally, and I said there's more we could say on this, but we see Matthew's point, the church grows worldwide. In the Great Commission we see here, he calls his disciples to go and preach the gospel to all nations, to all people. And today on Easter Sunday, well over a billion people are worshipping the resurrected Jesus from every nation. And today we, we see evidence of that as we look around and just even in this church, the majority of us here aren't Jews. We're not historically from the Middle East. The gospel has spread. Praise God. The majority in this room worship Jesus as a risen saviour. That is 
unbelievable if there isn't some truth into this 2,000 years ago. Or if at least it wasn't believed to be true. Lives transform and the church grows. Because of course, a number, the number of believers doesn't make something necessarily true. You can believe some stupid stuff. Many people can believe some stupid stuff. It doesn't mean it's true. But something happened to turn all these people into worshippers. Something happened to turn us into worshippers 2,000 years later. So, so four things. There's lots more we can say if it's true. But, but the so what matters. I think if you're not following Jesus here today, if you're asking questions, if you're looking in, as we said, you're so welcome. We want you to feel really welcome here at church. Can I just challenge you that the, the, the burden of proof doesn't just lie with the Christian to prove Jesus rose from the dead. You need a valid answer to these historical facts. Facts are tested to, as I said, by Jewish historians who don't want this to be true, by many non-Christian historians as being true. The burden of proof doesn't just stand with the Christian. And surely, in his, his point, you, you should actually want the resurrection to be true. If you don't, you should want to. Why? Well, as Lang's prayed again, because of our greatest fear, death. Our society, we know it, all of us in this room, without Christ, have a sense, of, a sense of confusion, a sense of lostness when it comes to thinking about what's next. We spend our lives trying to avoid it, our lives working against it. We, we all know that death is desperately sad, but totally inevitable. It's the universal statistic, isn't it? A hundred percent of us here will one day die. And the resurrection gives us hope. So if you're looking in, can I encourage you to keep looking? And now listen in now as we go to the next part of Matthew. As we look at this, what difference does it make? If you, if you don't kind of believe me, just listen in on this. Because it makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world. And firstly, we see what difference does it make. Three things we're going to see. And this is what Langs was saying when he prayed that it's so easy to come Sunday on, what, Easter East Sunday, go, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, I get it. Fine, sure, move on. No, 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 it makes a real difference in our lives. And the challenge is, is it making a real difference in our lives? Firstly, the resurrection means Jesus deserves all our worship. So bow down before him. Did you notice a response to the resurrected Jesus in our passage, verse 9? The women see the risen Jesus. He meets them and they fall at his feet and worship him. Verse 17, we see Jesus appears for the disciples. When they saw him, they worshipped him. If you believe in the resurrection, the only natural response is worship. Why? Well, because Jesus was God, who alone is to be worshipped. If he did rise from the dead, it proves he was God and he's worthy of worship. Jesus' claim to be the Son of God is validated by his resurrection. It's him saying, well, it's us saying now that you're God and I'm not. That's why we deserve worship. We can't rise from the dead. We couldn't do that. And so if you don't yet trust in Jesus, that, that is the call. Can I call you to do that? He is worthy alone of our worship. Because our lives are lived either in worship of ourselves, of our needs, of our desires, of our wants, or of another's. Or, and the only person worthy of our worship is the one who made the world, who came to fix it when we broke it and who will restore it. Jesus is worthy of our worship. The disciples and women saw that as he rose from the dead. He wasn't just a, a dead teacher, which is what he would have been if he hadn't risen from the dead. He would have been a wise teacher, done, said some clever things. His teaching would have lived on potentially for a little bit, but he'd be dead. But no, he's alive, and so he's worthy of our worship. Secondly, I'll spend a bit of time in here. The resurrection means he has all the power, so rest in him. 
Earlier in our series, we looked at the vision of Daniel in Daniel 7 of the coming king. It says this, this is what was prophesied of the coming king, the Messiah. It says he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And here then we see what's typed in your Bible, the Great Commission. Jesus' final words says here, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You notice it right there at the start, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, has been given to the risen Jesus. As Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished. If you're here on Friday, Simon was speaking about our, our bankruptcy is absolute. But Jesus has totally paid the penalty for our sin. The resurrection tells us that sin is beaten, totally defeated. It says he has totally powerfully defeated it through his death. Paul in Romans 4 says he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. We're justified. That means declared right before God because of his resurrection. If he hadn't died, he'd be a dead man. But the curse of death is broken totally. And he's been given all authority. What does that mean for us now? Well, firstly, on that point, on, on the curse of death being gone, well, well, friends, we can live without a fear of death if you trust in the resurrection, if you trust in Jesus. Because by, by fearing death, we, by living anxious of it, in some ways we're just saying we don't trust that what has happened is the total beating of sin. The curse has been lifted. It, it, it means as well we, we need not live with shame or anxiety that our sin is still counted against us because amazingly, the resurrection proves it isn't. Proves God did take Jesus' death as right punishment. And so it means we need to not live trying to still earn our way before God in any way because he's perfectly performed where we never could. So as it says there, so rest. That's, that's the command, the command to rest. It's an odd one. Rest in him. Paul in Galatians said it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Live in freedom. This is the chance of the resurrection. Today's a day of joy because we live now in freedom. We need to let the fact that the resurrection proves that that death that proves that the curse of sin has finally been beaten lead us to joyful worship. We saw the women there. They were afraid yet filled with joy. That's to be our response. The resurrection changes our perspective on everything about how we live in this life. It changes how we think about sin, how we deal with suffering that this knife of levity brings. It changes how we view death. I was reading as I prepared today about a, a chronically ill woman who, a woman who whenever somebody says to her, you seem to be suffering uh, so much. How do you feel? She just replies, nothing the resurrection won't cure. Nothing the resurrection won't cure. What a, imagine she's got a glint in her eye as she says it because she knows it's true. Because she's right. If you know the resurrection's coming, it's impossible to be hopeless. That's what it means to live in light of the resurrection. And as I said at the start, we, we see, we rest because of his authority, his authority over sin, but then his, his authority over all things on earth and in heaven now. 
Because where's Jesus now? Well, he's, he's sitting at the right hand of God in total control, working all things for his glory. He is total control and total authority. And we need to trust him in this. It's hard. But it says he is total control of our lives, of our jobs. So total control of the wars raging in this world. The schools we go to, the places we work, he has total control over the illnesses we feel. So the upbringing of our children, he has authority. And that is a comfort because he's a good God. And he's a good God, but he has authority, which means he rules. And we're to live rightly under that rule. We see as he commands the disciples to go and make disciples, he commands them to baptize them and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. His total rule over how we live, how we work, how we study, over our marriages, over our money, our careers, our, our children, our sport, our hopes, our dreams. He has all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the risen King Jesus. So let's rest in that, because it is finished. Let, let, let's rest in that. We can't solve every problem. Calm your anxiety. You can't solve every problem. Rest in that. He will work all things for our good and his glory. Rest in that. Sin has been defeated. We have a certain hope. And we can long for the day when we will totally rest with him in the new creation. So rest because he has all authority. Finally, the resurrection means he has a purpose now. So let's join him in it. Can we read it again? The final instructions of the disciples. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. As we've said, if the resurrection is true, it changes everything because the incomparable great power which saw jesus christ raised from the dead is now in us so we can now live in light of a new creation to come but we live in the now not yet don't we we have a purpose now as we live before christ returns the resurrection changes everything it changes how we conduct our relationships it changes what our attitudes are uh, to money and power it changes how we work it changes how we understand justice it changes how we love our neighbors it changes everything and here as we see the Great Commission, we see it affects our priorities. And we're told here our primary priority is to be to go and make disciples of all nations. And that this flows out of a heart of worship from a life which lives as if this is true. We saw that the women, they're afraid yet filled with joy and they worshipped. And then they went to tell others. And the disciples, we know as we read the story, they went to tell others. And it's a real challenge to me as I looked at that. Do I live as if this is actually true? Do I wake up each morning, not just on Easter Sunday, when we sing? I don't know why we don't sing these songs every week. <laughs> we should. Because if it's true, how on earth could I keep silent? The fact that death, the, the greatest enemy in the world has been defeated. But if people put their trust in Jesus that they can live forever with him, that's the greatest news in the world, isn't it? Surely. And we don't need clever words to do this. We don't need specific models or diagrams to explain it necessarily. They can all help. But really all we need is a heart of worship. As the women at the tomb had. As the disciples had. We need to look at Christ. To look at Jesus. The risen Jesus. See him. Love him. And let that overflow in our relationships. So if there was an action to that one. said join him in it. But firstly look at Jesus. Look at Jesus who died in your place. Look at Jesus who took the right punishment for sin we deserved. 
Look at Jesus who bled for you, who was whipped for you, who was scourged for you, who was broken and beaten for you, who gave up your life for you. Look at Jesus who rose for you, who defeated death for you, who caused the earth to break. The Jesus who angels worship, who now sits at the right hand of the Father. Look at Jesus. As we look at Jesus, hearts won't be able to stop us from going and speaking of them to those around us. And the challenge here, those not around us. And we go to make disciples. Not just professions of faith. We, we see that as it says here. It's a clear warning to us here as well. Called to make disciples, baptise people and teach them to obey all Jesus' command. So it's a challenging question for us there and how our life is different because we know the resurrected Jesus. It's a challenge there. I mean, a challenging question is what are we going to do with this good news? If we've looked at Jesus and we want to go, we see the call here to go to all nations, all people groups. Not just those we know, but also those we don't. And that's a real challenge for us, isn't it? Not just to go to our friends, but to go to our colleagues who we never speak to. Not just to go to the neighbour who we're friendly with, but the neighbour we haven't met yet, even though we live three years next to them. To go to our, our classmate who sits on their own at lunch. To go to our, our teammate who never passes the ball and we never speak to. To go to the refugees who are moving into our town that we don't yet know yet. And also to go further afield as well. To go to the people who don't have the Bible in their own language. To go to those who don't speak our language. To go to all nations. And that's always going to be sacrificial. It's going to take our time. It's going to take our money. Take our comfort. Take our fear of awkwardness, maybe. And so when we think about it, when we're tempted to compromise here, what do we do? Look at Christ. Look at our risen saviour, all authority. And see the comfort in verse 20 from Jesus. He's so kind. We see it again and again through his passage, kindness. The way he appears to the women and comforts them. The way he appears to the disciples and comforts them. And we see it here, the way he comforts us. And you may be daunted going, what on earth? Verse 20, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. What a comfort in light of this daunting commission. Do we need to apply the resurrection personally? It's not just a, a theory. It's not just an apologetic, which makes it go, okay, it makes sense. It adds up in my head. No, no, we apply it to how we live now. And we go in love. We need to let his power free us from sin and fear and greed. And it makes us unstoppable in love. It will free us to live lives of radical Love, because if he's with us here to the end, as we're told he is, if he has all authority in the universe, what do we have to fear? We can love and serve and sacrifice and never lose. We can sacrifice our comfort. We can sacrifice our fear. We can sacrifice our dreams and our desires, which aren't of him, and never lose. That's the practical effect of the resurrection of Jesus. When you apply it. As we close, let me, let me give two examples of what this kind of life might be. And invite you to trust him in this way this Easter Sunday. One will seem radical, will seem out there. But I pray it may be a challenge for you to go to all nations. One will seem closer to home. Firstly, someone who took going to all nations very seriously, who trusted in the resurrected Christ. If you've been here a while, you've heard me talk about them before. I was at school with the daughter who I'll speak about now. The Staines family, they moved to India in the late 90s. To care for lepers who were utter outcasts in India. No one else would love them. They did. They took their three young children. Fearful for their education? Sure, in some ways they were. 
But in most ways, no. They trusted that God would be with them always. Fearful of their comfort, no. Driven by their love for the lost. They learned the language. They helped the poor and the sick. They spoke to them of Jesus despite serious opposition. They were shaped by the fact they believed in a resurrected saviour. A saviour would come and restore the world, who would restore those with leprosy. In 1999, Graham and his two sons were brutally murdered by Hindu fundamentalists. And at their funeral broadcast of a nation, his wife Gladys said this, I have only one message to the people of India. I'm not bitter, neither am I angry, but I have one great desire, that each citizen of this country should establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ who gave his life for their sins. Let us burn hatred and spread the flame of Christ's love. My husband and our children have sacrificed their lives for this nation, but India is my home. I hope to be here and continue to serve the needy. Gladys continued to minister to those India. She does now. Trusting in the resurrection, she knows she'll see her family again. When you speak to her, it's powerful. A life transformed by the resurrection. Closer to home, my sister and my brother-in-law. Been chatting to them a lot this week. They minister in inner city Liverpool. Close to home. One of the poorest parishes in the country. That's always been their hearts. They serve the poor. They run food banks. They distribute wealth. They strive to care for the broken and the lost. They take many, many funerals. More than you could imagine. Often in tragic circumstances. And they preach the good news of Jesus to those who desperately need it. I spoke to my sister the other day. After a pretty awful week. And yet they still love where they are and what the Lord is doing despite real trials. Why? Because their lives have been transformed by the resurrected Jesus. And they're taking his commission seriously to go to all nations. Go to people who need the gospel. Who other people are not willing to go to. And they're doing so sacrificially, trusting God is in total control, trusting God has total authority, trusting he is with them, even in the midst of great trials at the moment. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus was crucified. This is why Jesus rose from the dead with all authority, why he promised to be with us to the end of the age, to create a people, a people whose sins are forgiven. A people whose hearts are full of the love of God, a people who are so emboldened by the triumphant Christ. That they spend their lives with risk and with sacrifice and love to help others know and enjoy the greatness of Christ forever and ever in all nations. Is that not what you were made for? This is the difference the resurrection makes in our lives. It's all transforming. We live in light of a living hope and we go. Let me pray. And then we're going to sing in response. Father God, thank you so much for Matthew and other eyewitnesses like him who have pointed to to evidence, who have declared that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And then show us what it means to live in light of that. Father, help us to look and see Jesus. Help us to worship Jesus and help us then to go with the greatest news in the world, living in response of what you have done. We need your help in all things. Help us, we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing. Living Hope.
This is the chorus. This is a response to pray. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Thank you.